but I'd love having this absolute freedom. I'd never, I'd never trade it. Even even if I I live like this and and never can afford to buy a house here in Tasmania, I'm I'm kind of okay with that because I I live for myself. I support myself, um, and I feel very lucky to kind of have this this dreamlike experience of of people supporting us here in Tasmania. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. In Japan, it's not uncommon to find small, hole-in-the-wall hospitality venues with little more than 10 or 12 seats. But in Australia, it's not as common, but there are few minuscule spaces where magic happens for a select few on any given evening. Lachlan Colwell is the co-owner of Omotanashi in Hobart. Lachlan, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's good to get you on the show. You've got one of the smallest uh, little venues in the country. How are things going? Good, good. We actually, uh, we started with 12 seats and we've cut it back now to 10. So we got even smaller. <laughs> That's um, extraordinary. Why did you cut it back? Um, 12, 12 felt a little bit tight around the table. Um, but also we kind of found that it was forcing us to verge on having that third person involved in the business. Um, if we did 10, we sort of felt like we could kind of handle all of the steps of service ourselves without tipping over the edge. So 10 was kind of the nice number. You have um, a very unique sort of venue in a, in a different sort of space. Tell us, tell us about Omotanashi. Yeah, so we, we've been there a year now. Um, we've just clicked over the start of November, but we're in the, the trunk of the Lexus of Tasmania showroom, um, which is actually something that when when the space was first being designed, um, we weren't involved in the sort of initial concept um, it was Luke Burgess that was designing it and he was sort of chatting my ear off saying you should really do this project next um, and I kind of kept avoiding him a little bit or avoiding the conversation because to me I was just sort of envisioning like a Ford showroom and stark white walls and a bunch of uninspiring blokes sitting around eating burgers kind of thing um, and it wasn't until I saw the space that I thought oh this is kind of perfect for us and it's exactly what Sophie and I had wanted to do um, just somehow someone else had designed it and pretty much gifted it to us was was the idea in regards to the food and the offering something that you brought to the table or that they wanted how did that work yeah we we sort of I guess we have a background in cooking um, directly sort of facing guests from our previous work um, at Hentley Farm restaurant that I opened many, many years ago and ran for a long time. The chefs were always involved in the front of house um, to the point where there'd be some days where you'd see way more chefs than you would front of house staff as a guest. Um, so for Sophie and I, we already kind of knew that that concept of being direct customer facing would be fine for us and quite sort of suitable. Um, and then Japanese cuisine, it's probably the country I've travel to the most um, and then that link with Lexus being a Japanese car brand at their sort of core it just made a lot of sense when we walked into the space and even the name coming together we had no idea what we would call it um, do you call it Sophie and Lachlan's 10 seater or something you know something I'm terrible with that sort of things so it would have been something corny um, and the owner of Lexus said well you know what they, they'd eaten a few times our little test runs and they said what we love is this sort of art form of Omotanashi and that's what we try to install in our workers um, and it's what you guys seem to sort of naturally project so the name just stuck and the concept seemed pretty easy to fall into um, plus there was a lot of parallels in Tasmanian ingredients you know there was wasabi here and shiitake mushrooms and seafood 
seafood and so things that we thought well this kind of just naturally all fits um so why not just go for it it's it's something that we see in japan quite a lot this sort of small sort of venue is it is it hard as a from a business sense in australia to make it work it <laughs> yes i'd be lying if i said it was easy um yeah, it is. We're definitely not not making bank. Um, we can pay ourselves a pretty measly wage, but you know the sort of the price point that we're at and the size that we are um, means there's only so much sort of activity we can do. We we toyed with the idea of doing multiple services in one day, or you know turning table not turning tables over, but turning the entire table over and having two sittings. Um, but none of that really sort of vibed with us from the way we like the experience to flow. So um, I think if there was someone that was more financially minded or if we had a business partner who was kind of funding it, they would probably force us into that world of, of gearing up into a more stable sort of financial situation. Um, but we think all of that kind of takes away from the real joy of it for us. So we're happy to kind of just make do because we love our work and we kind of love it how it is now. So, yeah. Tell us about uh, your business partner, Sophie Pope. Um, how does it work? How do you work together and um, sort of control the service side of things and the cooking? Who, who does what? Um, so sort of the beginning of the service, it'll, it'll very much look like and the comment people sort of give is, is as if I'm the sort of chef and I'm the sole chef. Um, Sophie's doing all of the drink service and, and sort of guest interactions and seating and greeting and, and getting everyone ready for the kind of meal. Um, and she plays that host role. But sort of midway through the meal, once the kind of savoury cooking is done, we kind of swap roles and I've become more of the, the host and the table clearer and resetter. Um, and, and Sophie sort of kicks in to do all of the desserts and pastry side of it. Um, but that's, that's only the service aspect from a preparations point of view. Sophie probably does, in all honesty, more of the preparation than I do. I really focus on the, the fish and the seafood, um, which is something that I like to take a lot of time with and I get there super early so there's no distraction of it because I really like to work in a kind of no distraction space. Um, Sophie comes in after that and does all of the pastry work, all of the kind of sauces and tinkering and ferments and all of that is done by her. Um, we've undergone this sea urchin project that we've taken on in the last couple of weeks and I'm still yet to clean a single sea urchin. Um, although people kind of give me the pat on the back as if I'm doing all the work, really I'm just I'm just talking to the diver and organising the fridge. Sophie's doing all of the actual labour. Um but it's kind of just a we just sort of lean into each other's skill sets or into our timelines of who does what. Um, so we basically share everything and, and just play off each other's strengths. Really, um, it's a it's a shame, and we sort of I find I, I need to kind of reinforce the idea that Sophie is still a chef in the atmosphere. She's not just a, a waiter. Um, that me as the sort of obvious figure playing the chef role um, has hired in. Sophie's doing majority of everything, if not more than I am. Um, She's got a little bit of youth on her side compared to me, so she's definitely uh, outdoes me in energy. <laughs> well, does, does being so sort of consumer-facing and being so open, does that affect sort of, you know, the way you work in the kitchen and also what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the first weeks when we open, we kind of, we've got this kitchen set up where everyone's sitting directly in front of us, very much like the Japanese counter-style restaurant. But then we have the little back kitchen where you can run away and if you had to say, 
do a cooking job that's not so glamorous, you'd run back there and kind of do it. In the first weeks, we sort of did a lot of the, well, we did probably 60% of the cooking behind the scenes and then sort of brought it out almost to just show off the, the pretty aspect of it. Um, but then we kind of quickly realized that people were more engaged and sort of enjoying the experience more the more we did in front of them. Um, the more you kind of did the ugly job or the difficult job or, um, for example, like peeling the skin off mackerel is something that sometimes it's really easy and sometimes it's kind of difficult and you might fumble with it or um, you need to grow your nails out a particular size to be able to peel mackerel skin. Um, without it, you can't do it. Um and we used to do it all behind the scenes and then we kind of did it one day just out of the fact that the seafood was delivered late and I just wasn't prepared so I was sort of prepping as we went one night and it became one of the best nights real early that people kind of watched us doing these preparation steps. So we just kept adding those steps and sort of doing less in our prep time and involving more of the kind of prep steps into the service, um, which then sort of created this atmosphere where there was a constant conversation back and forth. Um, and that sort of five minutes, let's say you're, you're eating a, a snack or a dish every five minutes with us, um, that five minutes in between, instead of people staring at each other or going back to their conversation or looking at their phones, which is the worst thing we think can happen, um, they were engaging with us. They were chatting to us. They were watching me go through the sort of motions of the produce, um, which felt really good. And it changed the conversation at the at the table. And because everyone's sitting together and they don't necessarily know each other, it almost created this environment as if we're all kind of learning together. Um, and if I made a mistake, it sort of became the better experience because um, I could laugh it off and they could kind of see it. And then it's now led into people reaching out and asking a lot about, you know, <laughs> recipes and cookery techniques and, and people have dined multiple times within a sort of season of a product because they want to see that product be prepared a couple of times. Mackerel is a good example. Um, and then what's great for us is people are going out and saying, hey, I watched you do it three or four times. I'm now buying mackerel myself, um, which is cool. Yeah, it's it's something we, we didn't plan. We didn't think it just naturally unfolded like that. And even though I feel like it diminishes the experience by saying it, it's a little bit like a cooking class. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds extraordinary. Um, I, wa I want to explore what you're doing there in detail in a little bit, but take us back to when you were young. Where, whereabouts did you grow up and what sort of role did food play? Yeah, I grew up in a town on the western ridge of the Brossa Valley called Freeling, a um, little farming community, mostly probably pig farmers and, and wheat growers, um, a town with maybe six or seven churches, one we lived right next door to, not that we were religious um, at all, but it was that real sort of country town vibe, maybe maximum 1,500 to 2,000 people, could be wrong in the town, but about that. Um, we rode our bikes around as a, I'm a family of four boys, all within a sort of three-year age gap. So there was the kind of terror of us and the neighbours having their boys and all the boys of the town riding their bikes around. Um, we grew up, you know, with prior to the internet and those mobile phones and those things existing. So I have this real fond memory of my childhood. Um, I don't have kids now, but if I did, I, I wish they could you could put them back in that sort of timeline of life where where you felt safe walking around a town with no shoes on. Um, you felt safe knocking on a neighbour's door if you, you know, had lost your house keys or something like that and you could just hang out in their backyard until mum and dad got home or that kind of thing that sort of sounds like or seems like it probably doesn't exist much in this day and age. Um, 
but yeah, that was that was the childhood for us. Real freedom in a country town. I, I love it. <laughs> are, are there any dishes or feasts that you recall from your youth that you can share with us? Um, my mum was a, and my dad, but my mum was always a very good cook. Um, she sort of taught on and off cookery while we're in primary school, um, Chinese cookery, which I don't really understand. I've never really spoke to her about where that came from, but she kind of taught Chinese cookery and could do fried rice and um, pork ribs and all these sort of like, I guess, Australiana kind of Chinese food. Um, But she could do it. There was never, we were going out for takeaway or anything like that. So, and in a small community like Freeling, um, it was known within my family that my mum could cook um, and it was kind of known within the community. So, it was often there was things that we would go to and it'd sort of be other people's parents would do some catering and it would be sausages and rissoles, but everyone there would be flocking to whatever my mum has made. <laughs> um, so I, th- I think for me, I, I really, I didn't realise it at the time, but we were so lucky to have um, the sort of upbringing with food that we had. Um, the only downfall was because we had so much of a good thing with good nourishing food. As a teenager, I, I wanted the exact opposite. I wanted to be able to go to the shop and buy chips and lollies and pies. So um, up until I had that access to going to the shop independently, I was a skinny, fit little kid. And then I just packed the weight on through all my teenage years because I was free to eat from the canteen kind of thing. Um I'd throw, throw away mum's beautiful lunches that she made for me or hide them under my bed um, and I'd scratch together whatever change I could to buy pizza pockets and things, which, yeah, I regret it now because it's taken me years to get those pizza pockets off my hips. <laughs> well, some of us never get them off our hips. Yeah, um, well. <laughs> <laughs> when did you first sort of start getting interested in food and consider a career as a chef? Um, I was a total school dropout I I was sort of told that I needed to repeat year seven in year seven which I think because all my friends were going off to high school uh, mum and dad decided that would probably be the little bit too crushing for me but I'm pretty sure I failed year eight and I failed and repeated year nine so by the time I was in early year 10 it was it was just obvious to me and I think everyone else involved that school wasn't for me um I think if from memory I broke my arm um and had to have surgery and that kind of kept me out of school for a couple of months. And once I was sort of healed from that, the idea of going back to school, it just seemed like I'd been distant from it for so long. So um, a couple of my friends were working on the bottling line in Penfolds in Nuriutpa in the Barossa Valley. And I seemed keen as to do that just because money sounded great and um, hanging out with my friends all day sounded good. And mum kind of intervened and said, there's no way you're going onto a bottling line we'll get you a job um, with a little bit more purpose or something that you could build on and probably enjoy more. So, so mum and dad sort of got me my first kitchen hand job, which I think I worked maybe four weeks and I, I went to the head chef at the time and resigned and said, it's not for me, um, don't want to work weekends. They'd text me and I'd turn down every shift, um, which is funny because about 10 years later, there's I'm texting these school kids about kitchen hand shifts and they're turning me down. So uh, karma came around and got me. Um, but then I fell into another place in the Barossa Valley called 1918 and it was a, a sort of owner who um, – the main thing was me is he, he loved music um, and it was the sort of music that I grew up with. So, it felt comfortable. You'd go into the kitchen and there'd be the Beatles White Album playing or there'd be Led Zeppelin playing um, or Fleetwood Mac and all these sort of late 60s, 70s bands that I already had an appreciation for. So, it was kind of – that was what 
kept me in the door. Um, and then I started sort of falling in love with the sort of act of cooking, I guess, from a kitchen hand in that sort of place. It's you were peeling prawns and prepping veg and doing all these jobs that kitchen hands wouldn't normally do. Um, but it was a small country restaurant, so you were sort of part of the team and, and that meant you'd do any job. So, And then because I loved eating so much and I was a pretty chubby kid at this stage, um, I was sort of given things like a panna cotta or a creme brulee and I couldn't believe how delicious they were and that I'd been wasting my time eating ice creams from the deli. Um, so, so the idea of being able to make those things, like setting a panna cotta, seemed so alluring um, to keep sort of chasing. So, yeah, I, I really just... It was, it was food and music in the atmosphere that I loved, um, and it's what kept me there for a long time. So, As you sort of started to build your career, who were the really important people and venues that set you on your path? I think um, my partner at the time, Emma Shearer, who's now um, the owner of the Lost Loaf Bakery in Adelaide, um, arguably I think probably the best bread you can have in all of Adelaide and rivals that around Australia. Um, but we were we were together and she was working as a – she was qualified and I was an apprentice, but she was working at 1918 on the pan section. Um, so I sort of always looked up to her and she was – I think she's about two years or three years older than me. So there was a lot that I could kind of absorb. Um, we ended up living together quickly after kind of getting together and it was that environment where the, the work was difficult. You know, you worked all day, you were paid for half your day, um, which was the wrong thing. But I kind of look at it still as a, such a gift because it taught me a lot. Um, but we would go home and talk about food and I, I would absorb everything that she sort of had learnt those couple of years ahead of me. Um, so that was, a, that was a real influence. And when I look back at it now, we, we were together for I don't know, seven or eight years or something like that. And it all ended sort of quite naturally um, without any sort of aggression or um, hurt feelings or anything after the fact. Um, so I, I look at that period with them as is so important to me. Um, the relationship in general taught me a lot about relationships and being with someone older kind of matured me quicker than I would have had otherwise. Um, and her approach to food was, was quite simplistic. She, she didn't really want any ego or any glory out of it. She just wanted the ability to cook, um, which is what I wanted as well, to be able to confidently cook. So we, we sort of did that together and we went on together to end up working at the Mance restaurant in North Adelaide. Um, and within about a probably a year of working there together, we were sort of co-head chefs or head chef and pastry chef. Um, we worked with a guy called Ahan Urcock, who was the first um, chef that I probably was nervous to sort of be around and wanted to really impress. Before that, it was just kind of, it's not that I didn't want to impress the chefs we sort of worked with or the head chefs or owners of venues, but he was the first guy where I really thought, wow, this guy's a, a sort of another level of cookery that I haven't been exposed to. So I was nervous about applying for the job there and, and he never called me back. Um, so I just cold called him one day and said, what's the deal? And he said, oh, yeah, sorry, I've been busy. Yeah, you've got the job, whatever, come tomorrow, <laughs> which was kind of his nature. Um, so there I was and, and, yeah, within a sort of year or so, he was off opening his own restaurant and we just absorbed everything. He'd, he'd recently come back from staging at Noma. This is before they'd been number one in the world, and but they were sort of on the on the path. This is around 2009 or 10. Um 
so we just sort of absorbed everything that he had been absorbing on his travels and, and Emma and I kind of took the reins from there. Um, and then beyond that, I, I was a head chef, so my influence from others sort of started to dwindle and I kind of had to just do it on my own, which if I look back at it now, it's probably I would have loved to work under someone a little bit longer, but I've come through it now and out the other side, I'm, I'm fine with it all. <laughs> what, what were the challenges like when in your first head chef role? Um, was, was it difficult for you? Yeah, I was very young, so I would have been, I think, 22 at the age. And the Mance was a restaurant that had been there for 30 years and had a legacy of, you know, awards and, and being known in Adelaide as the top French restaurant. Um, so the fact that I was there doing the job, I, w- I was full of, I guess, a cocky style of confidence at the time. And I felt pretty good about my cooking abilities. And I had Emma there backing me up constantly. So I guess my, my ego um, or arrogance kind of got me through that period, but it was difficult to, to build a team of anyone older than me. Um, the second it was kind of announced that, that I was taking over pretty much anyone over the age of 25 resigned um, and were probably disgusted of the idea of this young guy getting getting the role that maybe some of them were fighting for. Um, but then it, it kind of played into my favour. Something that I, I harnessed for the next probably 10 years of my career was hiring really young people, um, being quite honest and open with them about who I was and what I was about and, and what we wanted to achieve and then inspiring these young people to kind of help us live out that dream. And we had we had success at the Mance with a very young team and I then went on to open Hentley Farm with, with a bunch of the apprentices from the Mance um, and, and had success and kind of the, I think the thing that people, guests and, and media and alike kind of picked up of with Hentley Farm is that I was still, when I opened it, only 24 or 5 um, and the team, most of the team was sort of between 17 and 21. Um, and it stayed like that somehow. We, <laughs> no one would ever, I'd never hire anyone that much older than me. It was always that we just kept getting these young people and making a system work with them. So, and, and it was kind of charming to see their progression um, over the years and, and for guests to see these people grow. And So, yeah, that sort of became the system that I became very used to and enjoyed. Well, Hentley Farm received many accolades. How, how did it all begin? Um, I'm, I was working at the Mance and um, the Spencer family, Raymond and, and Daryl Spencer, who were part owners of um, Hentley Farm, they dined for Daryl's 40th birthday. And I, I didn't know them at all the, at the time, but they bought all of their own wine. And it was probably just after work, we're drinking this Hentley Farm Shiraz or something. Um, and at the time, I, I'm not really a drinker. So at the time, I didn't really care about it at all, but I could tell the wait staff were enjoying it. And I think Hentley Farm was sort of up and coming in the wine game at that stage. So everyone kind of was putting it on this pedestal of these guys really know what they're doing from a wine point of view. Um, so I went out there one day to the cellar door and thought this is a cool site and it's literally 10 minutes away from where I grew up in my family home. It's in Sepplesfield and Freeling's just over the ridge. And someone, uh, I don't even know who, oh, Danny Galanti, a guy that worked for Hentley Farm as one of their sales reps, um, he said to me, oh, you should come out and do one of our members' events because we sort of like the Stonewallers lunch in the Barossa was so popular at the time. Hentley Farm were probably thinking we need to add that type of experience to our to our offering to keep people buying every year and coming back and and to build the membership. So they, they invited us out to do a little bit of cooking and Emma and myself and James, who was our apprentice at the time, 
um, who's my best friend now. Um, we went out and, and cooked in this little sort of cottage at Hentley Farm and they showed us the stables, which was just full of dead snakes and smelt like rat piss. Um, <laughs> and we thought, oh, that would make a cool restaurant space and kind of walked away without thinking much more about it. And, and six months later, I was back standing in that space talking about um, how the kitchen would be designed and and where the best sort of this and that was and, and how the chef team would come together and sort of the rest was history from there. So, and that, they gave me a lot of freedom. And again, at a very young age, it's an opportunity I was given that I don't think people get in this day and age, which is, which is kind of sad, but maybe <laughs> makes sense um, because it was a huge risk for them. They, they, picked up this young guy and his young apprentices. Um, the manse closed in North Adelaide and they kind of absorbed us, gave us absolute autonomy to do whatever we liked and we just created it however we felt like. Um, Hentley Farm was a real celebration of local produce. Do you have any stories of the connections with local producers that you fostered? Yeah, so it was, it was kind of a, a not that I thought about it at the time, but it was a real smart play um, on my behalf because I grew up in that region. So I, I kind of already knew the families that had had the farms, um, the the town that I grew up in with the pig farms, the Schusters had just won a bunch of awards for their pork. Um, I, I went to school with them, went to primary school and high school with them. So it was pretty easy for me to reach out and say, oh, hey, um, guys, do you want to supply this little restaurant we've got with this pork and, and they were keen just to have someone local involved and keen on it um, and then we kind of already knew from my childhood of being out and about in nature and riding our bikes around we knew where fig trees were and we knew where people's orchards existed and the orchards with the broken fence that you could easily get into and that sort of thing so and and at this time this is around the 2011 sort of point where foraging was becoming the cool thing to do for chefs um, so it was simple. I was in this landscape where I, I knew where all of this produce was or knew the families behind the produce. Um, I barely had to do any research. Um, I think now moving to Tasmania, we've had to do so much work setting up connections and meeting people and building relationships. It's taken us about three years to get to something that we're sort of feeling comfortable with. In the Barossa, we just, I think the restaurant was opening in you know four weeks' time and I still hadn't sorted out any of these things. And within the next couple of weeks, it was all there. Tell us about the move to Hobart. How did that come about? Um, so when the pandemic was first sort of being announced globally, I think it's very early 2020, um, we had an incident in the Barossa where there was some American tourists that had sort of slipped through the, and it was this period where things weren't locked down, but people were being told, you know, if you're showing symptoms, um, don't travel around. And we had these American tourists that came to Hentley Farm, um, had been sort of promised us, no, no, we haven't been in contact with anybody. We haven't done anything wrong. We'll still come to Hentley Farm. And we were a little bit nervous about them. So we hosted this event outside Um which Keith, the owner, really insisted on. At the time, I thought, this is stupid. Surely we can just go ahead with it. And anyway, he insisted we did it outside. And sure enough, 24 hours later, we found out that all 14 of them had COVID. Um, so it instantly kind of put the brakes on the restaurant and essentially shut our doors quite early. And for me, I'd already been looking to move on. I'd sort of resigned years earlier, um, but kind of had the plan to slowly work myself out of the business because it was the business that I'd created every role. So to replace myself was more difficult than I ever thought it would be. Um, 
so I resigned in about 2017 and then sort of stayed on and um, up until 2020. But by the time we'd actually physically closed the restaurant, it, it felt like the motion of the last kind of nine years of work for me actually came to a stop. So re sort of reopening it just became this idea that seemed so difficult for me. Um, I was also probably at my lowest point from about sort of maybe 2018 to 2020. I sort of went into a real depression um, and you know was medicated for it and things. But it kind of changed changed my creative sort of feeling. I, I didn't really feel like I could cook anymore or do much in that aspect. I'd sort of sunk into a bit of a trap. Um, of antidepressants and, and energy at times and no energy at other times. So um, I, I just knew I needed a major change and I knew, knew I needed a change from Adelaide in general because uh, I think just leaving Hentley Farm and going somewhere else in Adelaide would have just sort of been a bit of a continuation of the same work. Um, so and because I bought a four-wheel drive and a big trailer and thought, well, Big Lap Australia. Um, Sophie was Sophie was working at Key in Sydney at the time um, as pastry chef and sort of said to her that, how does she feel? Is she feeling comfortable about how her job's looking in the future in the next couple of months? And she said, no, I think I'm just going to come back to South Australia and ride it out for a little while. Um, and I, and I think they'd made staff redundant or they'd paused everybody's contracts or something at the time. So Sophie kind of just walked away, packed her life in one split decision and came back to the Brosser. And we, we took a trip to Kangaroo Island in the, in the car and the trailer um, and said to ourselves, let's just big lap Australia. And then the borders all closed down. So we said, well, let's just big lap Tasmania then. So we moved to Tasmania, um, never went back. How, how did the move to Tasmania change you? What impact did it have on you? I think it freed me from my old self. Um, I, I'd built a persona or other people had built a persona of sort of who I was um, as this sort of chef in the Barossa Valley that had had these accolades and success um, and that I could kind of be booked to do particular events or particular things. I was heavily involved in South Australian Cur uh, Tourism Commission for many years, which was great. They, they flew me around the world to do all sorts of guest chef things and cooking bits and pieces, but I, I realised I'd never really had been myself, truly myself. Um, I'd probably been a corporate version of myself or, or built an image of me sort of standing there in the pearly whites, um, being as nice as pie, but the reality was I wasn't that person. I, I was probably more of a, a hippie at heart, really. Um, and, and I grew up in a small country town, so pretending in these big cities around the world, pretending like I was this kind of <laughs> seasoned, well-travelled chef. Um, I can keep the energy of, of late nights and drinking culture and all of that. I, I couldn't. I couldn't keep any of that. I just f kept faking it. So it felt very free to get away from South Australia and get away from anyone that really knew me. And we came to Tasmania and no one had any idea. No one knew what Hentley Farm was, which was great. Um Nobody identified us as hospitality people, so we just we moved to Dover, which is about an hour south of Hobart, um, which is a town of oh, maybe 500 people or something. Um, real, real small town vibes. Kids on motorbikes is about the only people you interact with. Um, and it was great for me. For Sophie, it probably got a bit boring because she enjoys being connected to the gym and yoga and all those kind of things that come with a city um, or a bigger town at least. But for me, it was just hanging out with our two cats um, playing guitar and sort of seeing sunrise and sunset, uh, which I, I desperately needed. 
So it, it was the beginning of a, a huge healing process for me. Um, I was able to cold turkey the antidepressants, um, shaved my head to sort of slightly change my identity. I had hair down to my shoulders and I just ripped it all off one afternoon or shaved it off. Um, and, I, and I felt like born again kind of thing. So it took me took me about six months until I started working. Um, and then when I started working, I went into a place called Port Signet Cannery just because they were doing this Naples-style pizza that we really loved and um, they were looking for staff and we kind of just got chatting with them from from eating there and they said, look, if you guys just want some casual work, then just let us know anytime. So eventually we reached out and within about another four weeks we were managing the whole venue, which is not really what we wanted. But I guess they, they just saw that we could do it um, and if people give us opportunities, we'll take them. So we, we took that opportunity, even though I probably should have held off a little bit longer um, and healed myself. But it was still good learning and we learned how to make Naples-style pizza, um, which is a nice feather in the cap. Um, yeah. Did, did this change um, and healing that you've gone through, has it changed the way you cook and view produce? Yeah, I... I think I, the way I cook now and particularly actually cooking, I'm, I'm 37 um, and if you asked me if we had this conversation a few years ago, I would have said, well, I'm changing careers and I, I don't want to cook anymore because I've exhausted my ability. Um, I, I sort of feel like I'm a first-year apprentice again. Um, cooking, cooking by myself or with Sophie there as well as the sounding board but not having to teach anybody how to cook next to you is a huge gift in a way and the fact that I get to do it this way is amazing because I'm, I'm forced to really go back to the fundamentals of cooking and, and by owning your own business you can ask questions of you know what is the purpose of making this stock this way if it takes this long and it means I need to be here all night watching it or skimming it um, surely there's another way so you sort of you come up with smarter ways to cook and, and I think better ways to cook um, that um, yeah, I, I feel like the sort of something like rice, I'd, I'd never felt comfortable to cook rice outside of a rice cooker. Um, I watched my mum do it for years and, and never thought it was something that I could do. I adapted to the rice cooker style of cooking rice for many years and rice is my favourite staple ingredient. It's what I eat the most of. Um, but in the last year, I've been able to just focus on rice so much that I now feel confident to cook it here there and anywhere we did an event yesterday for Mavo Mira at the farm that we're connected to down south um, and I'm cooking rice on little gas burners and understanding that it'll be perfect no matter what sort of anyone throws at me I feel so confident with it and and that just as one ingredient and one product um, at the age I'm at now and in my career feels so good um, the idea of being in a team and walking into the kitchen and watching someone else cook the rice would be so disheartening for me now. I, I love the I love the fact that I solidly cook. Uh, my life is cooking for people. It's not managing people or, or sitting in boardrooms talking about financial outcomes and years versus years. Um, it's literally cooking. I, I I seriously cook. Well, you're right. Rice is one of the world's great staples, but it is incredibly challenging outside of a rice cooker. Do you have any sort of tips on sort of nailing the perfect rice? 
Um, I think understanding the rice that you're buying is probably where a lot of people kind of go wrong. They, I think people think each packet of rice is the same thing, which it very much isn't. Um, rice grown in different regions around the world will have its their particular sort of ways. Um, I'm cooking majority sushi rice, so a, lo a lot of the processing really has to do with the washing and polishing of the rice beforehand. Um, that's probably the biggest part of it, I think. And then it's just understanding, you know, timings. You can cook any rice within a 30-minute window, but that 30 minutes particular rice need, say, six of those minutes at really high temperatures to get it boiling as quickly as they can, where other rice, they need a much lower temperature where they almost don't boil. Um, so at the moment, the current rice we use, which is a koshi hikari that's coming from Japan, um, it needs 12 minutes of serious heat and get it burning um, if you can and then as low as you can get the burner as you possibly can for another 12 minutes and then about 8 minutes of resting and that's to me is my current version of perfection <laughs> or as good as I can kind of get it. Um, but that's taken a long time and that's taken a lot of, or it's taken a year of, of cooking rice in exactly the same pot on the exact same little camp burner um, to really just understand it. And yeah, it feels good. It's, I, I love it. You mentioned that um, you like to focus on the seafood and Tasmania is renowned for some incredible seafood. Is there one or two sort of um, species or farmers, um, you know, that you've connected with that, um, that you can tell us about? Probably the coolest thing in Tasmania, which we didn't understand when moving here, is that all of the, the chefs or the good chefs in Tasmania, they're so connected to the small scale, um, which it's very easy to see when you come here as a, as a diner, if you're the type of person that travels to a state to sort of seek out the top restaurants. Um, you come to Tasmania and you realise you'll go to Fico, you'll go to Dimaker, you go to Hamlet or Oji or Sunny. And everyone's cooking with the exact same ingredients from the exact same producer, um, which some people could say, oh, that's a negative because I want to have all these different experiences. But I think it's a real positive because you get to then see the different interpretations and skill levels of each chef applied to the same ingredient. Um, so when there's particular seafood, if there's yellow-eyed mullet being caught in the north of the state, um, you can come to Omotanashi and have it in one way and you can go to Oji and have it another way and you can go to Fico and have it the other way which is, I think, amazing. It makes me want to go out to these restaurants more at the same time that I'm cooking with these ingredients and just see how they've approached it, um, which is cool. And I think that sort of does happen in other states, but because of the size of something like, say, Sydney or Melbourne or even Adelaide growing in size, that you sort of lose that. You can't have one small supplier covering all of the top restaurants. Uh, you've probably got to have 10 suppliers and they've all approached it a different way. So the ingredient's slightly different. Whereas here, it's it's pretty much one guy fishes for stripy trumpeter and we all get stripy trumpeter off that one guy. One guy does sea urchin and we all get sea urchin off that one guy, um, which we've absorbed now that it all comes through Omotanashi and then gets sort of delivered out from there. So... Um, that's that's a real joy for me and makes me feel very connected to the other chefs in Hobart without having to work with them. I feel like we all somehow work together in a strange way. Is there um, a dish or two or um, a part of the menu you can tell us about that sort of exemplifies where you're at with your food at the moment? Probably we do a dish in the middle of the meal that's something that I've, I've essentially done forever um, but this is the truest form of it where we serve vegetables either raw or steamed or very lightly barbecued 
um, with honey, salt, and sesame seeds. And it's very simple and I've done it for years but previously at Hentley Farm there was a little bit of pre produce that we could grow in the gardens there and otherwise we were substituting it with Whitloft just from a sort of common supplier or turnips from a supplier or you know we're placing an order for radishes and as much as people still enjoyed it um, as a chef there's only so much joy you can kind of derive from that. So now the version of it that we serve, it's it's majority all coming from Gardener's Bay Farm, which is my closest friend's farm um, that he co-owns with a guy called Phil O'Donnell, who are an inspiring couple, um, permaculture farm that sort of focuses on natural Korean farming processes. So really just improve improving the soil as much as they can to improve nutrient density, which once you've done all of that results in very delicious produce. I'm sitting here right now staring at king radishes and purple daikons and hackerai turnips grown by them that I have to ferment in a second. Um, <laughs> so so this sort of dish in, in the middle of the menu is something that's so simple and we kind of go into service every time thinking if, if people don't kind of get the simplicity of or the nuance of of a vegetable grown in a particular way, this is going to be missed or go over people's heads or be underwhelming. Um, but generally, people, they do. People will eat a hacker eye turnip and comment how sweet it is, um, eat a king radish and sort of comment how there's no no bite to it, that it's a real sweet, mild flavour and great texture. And so for me, it's kind of like I'm the farming has gone to such an extent to make this product great that I don't actually need to do anything. Um, I just need to either just make the decision of what temperatures apply to it and serve. Um, so that feels good and that's a part of the menu that it's sort of smack bang in the middle of the menu. We always judge ourselves on it but pretty much 99% of the time it gets a real applause so it's something we're sort of proud of and and I can happily go back to the farmers and say you know this applause that we get or the credit that we get is really your efforts it's I'm just the medium kind of thing um yeah which is that's a that's a nice feeling I think and for anyone's cooking if you can get to the point where you're not um polishing turds you're not <laughs> you're not buying you're not buying supermarket produce or you're not buying produce that needs a whole lot of work to make it taste good if the produce is already tasting great um all a chef does is just applies temperatures and and serves it and that's the best thing you can do is, is keep it simple in my opinion well you've had the most extraordinary transformation um, what do you love about what you do um there's a real we have real autonomy in our work working just the two of us um all the people around us kind of i think understand what we'd like and what we need so nobody sort of gets in our way which is nice and we we openly let people know that we need particular things to work at our best um for me i need to work alone even independent of sophie i need to work alone so i start work at 4am and I'm generally, my day is technically kind of finished by midday, although I'm still working all the time and doing things and working on the business, but I'm not physically standing in a kitchen. Um, so I, I love that. I love having this absolute freedom. I'd never, I'd never trade it. Even, even if I, I live like this and, and never can afford to buy a house here in Tasmania, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that because I, I live for myself I support myself um, and I feel very lucky to kind of have this this dreamlike experience of, of people supporting us here in Tasmania and um, I feel a real sense of sort of um, 
I don't know, a, a real calmness to our work that, that makes me, I think, a better person in general. If, if I've enjoyed my morning, I often drive home and think, how could I spend the next couple of hours helping somebody else in some way, shape or form? Um, I'm a generous person to my detriment because I end up in situations where I probably end up being way too generous um, and, and giving too much and not really getting any return on it. But I don't do it for a return. I do it because I, I feel happy in my own life. So I'm, I'd love to be able to sort of influence other people's lives if I could with that happiness. Well, Lachlan, it's absolutely extraordinary to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a part of your story. Um, please keep in touch and very much looking forward to hearing more from you as we move forward. I will. Thanks, Anthony. And thanks for reaching out. It was great to chat. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.